This is the World War II Radio Podcast. A date which will live in infamy. This is London. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. Go ahead, Berlin. This is the National Broadcasting Company. Welcome to the World War II Radio Podcast. Today, we have the CBS World News Today of January 10th, 1943. It includes updates on the war from Honolulu, London, Cairo, Moscow, Santiago, Washington, New York, and from inside a B-25 over the Gulf of Mexico. The World War II Radio Podcast is a Brick Pickle Media production. If you like the show, please leave feedback on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. For more, be sure to visit our website at brickpicklemedia.com slash podcasts. Thanks for listening. Enjoy today's episode of the World War II Radio Podcast. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. World News Today. Brought to you by Continental Radio and Television Corporation. Makers of Admiral Radio. America's smart set. By shortwave broadcast, direct from important overseas capitals, as well as the leading news centers of our own country, CBS correspondents are waiting to bring you a complete report from the world's political and battlefronts. But first, here's John Daly. On all the far-flung battlefronts of this war, initiative from the Axis powers. Land forces of the United Nations no longer dive instinctively for the foxholes when planes roar overhead, for most of them are allied planes. This single factor, perhaps more than any other, has put the United Nations on the offensive. In North Africa, in both Libya and Tunisia, the story of the fighting is principally the story of air fighting, of allied planes methodically hammering at Axis supply ports and Axis supply lines. American bombers from Tunisia have made their first attack on the Axis-held area of Tripoli in Libya today. They bombed an airfield ten miles west of the enemy base and scored direct hits. That pays back the British 8th Army in Libya for some of the attacks it has been making on Axis bases in Tunisia. It also reveals again the cooperation between the Allied forces in the East and West. Both, of course, are working with a common objective, to drive the Axis from all North Africa, and first, to drive them from the air. Allied air power in the last few days also has won and is still winning important decisions in the Pacific. And for a report direct from that area, Admiral Radio takes you now to CBS Honolulu, Webley Edwards reporting. This is Honolulu. The mopping up on the Papua Peninsula of New Guinea has forced the Jap back some 150 miles to his bases at Lai and Salamaua. This, however, is not so much of a retreat by him as it is a nipping off and destroying of his advanced base by the Allied forces. There were hardly any survivors to retreat. In a broader sense, the Japs have not even started the retreat in the Pacific. They've been stopped. Yet even now, they're preparing to strike again. Latest reports, 
or that our planes carried out a continuous night and day attack on a Jap convoy in the Huan Gulf area of northeastern New Guinea, hitting two transports, one of which was burning the other beach, shooting down or destroying on the ground 43 fighter planes, damaging a bomber and six fighters, in addition probably shooting 17 other Jap fighters out of the sky. Also, an additional seven out of 15 Jap fighter planes that attacked our planes on a return flight from bombing a Jap airdrome at Madan. But reinforcements were believed landed by the Japs in the Huan Gulf area. In the Solomon, the Guadalcanal, American forces hold their precious ground and its priceless airfield. Land fighting continues, but patrol action. Up north, at the other end of the vast Pacific front, the action is by sea and air, rather by land. The picture out here, then, is one of continuous bombing by air of Jap bases by our forces. Bombing that also extends into the reaches of the sea, seeking out Jap transports, carrying reinforcement troops for New Guinea in the south. Despite our thinking of substantial portions of his convoys and the probable death of thousands of Jap troops aboard, the enemy is believed to have been able to strengthen his forces, protecting his airfields in the New Guinea at Rabaul and New Britain and the Rekita Bay areas in Santa Isabel of the Solomon. Some of us out here consider the optimistic statement of Admiral William F. Halsey as probably the most unHalsey-like statement that great fighter ever made. He predicted complete, absolute defeat for the Axis powers, specifically including Japan, in this coming year. That is a large order, even for so great and successful a fighter as Admiral Halsey. If he can justify it, then he has information that many of the rest of us out here would like to have. There's only one reporter speaking, but one who's talked to many men who've been fighting and who've been observing on the long line from the Aleutians to New Guinea. Almost to a man, they predict a long war out here. They resign to a holding war with offensive, yes, but still a war of holding until the European deal is closed, and then still a long, hard battle before we give our men liberty in the city of Tokyo. Meanwhile, they're fighting fiercely in the most difficult theater of war with tremendous courage and inspiring success. This is Wubbly Edwards speaking from Pearl Harbor. We return you to CBS in New York. And now, before we get more reports from CBS correspondents abroad, here is Warren Sweeney with a word from Admiral Radio. Wherever America's fighting sons are serving, whether as advanced scouts on the desert wastes of Africa or as snipers in the foxholes of the Solomons, one ever-faithful friend is always at their side. That friend is their radio, built by Admiral. America's fighting sons spent many happy hours listening to their Admiral Radio in the living room back home. Now they find it's an admiral-built radio that fights with them on the field of battle. And the meeting of so dependable an old friend out there is a heartwarming experience. Knowing this, knowing the confidence these fighting men have in Admiral, inspires every worker in Admiral's two great plants with a desire to produce the best radio equipment possible as fast as possible. And all they produce goes to help America's armed services attain victory. When victory is won... Admiral will again build fine radios and radio phonograph combinations for home use, and thus serve these fighting sons a third time. For as victors, they will want to take into their own homes the familiar friend of pre-war days, the dependable partner of the battlefield, a radio built by Admiral, the only radio known as America's smart set. Now, here again is John Daly. Now across the Atlantic for the news of European developments, Admiral Radio turns now to CBS London, Bob Trout reporting. In London, for some weeks, war correspondents who specialize in reporting air operations 
have been arguing about the absence of an all-out air offensive against the Germans on the continent during the past two months. Some say the comparative lull has been due to Allied operations on other fronts, which required planes that would otherwise have gone to Royal Air Force's bomber command on this island. Others insist it's just been the weather. But the lull has been only comparative. Last night's Royal Air Force attack on targets in the German city of Essen was the fifth raid on the Ruhr in seven nights. Seven bombers are missing from this raid and mine-laying operations. The Air Ministry says good results from the British 4,000-pound bombs were seen at Essen. The weather over the targets was clear last night. While we cannot give weather details in wartime, everyone knows that Britain's weather has little in common with the weather in many American areas where new United States Army pilots are taught to fly. British fogs and rain are as much of a military factor as Tunisia's mud. Today, the London Sunday Express's columnist, Matt Gubbins, says only the British could survive food and fuel rationing and a wet northeast wind. The Huns, he says, might stand two winters in Russia, but I doubt if they'd stand one in England. Today's German High Command communique was read with some interest in London, where it was noticed that the German communique today speaks of the German garrison at Veliki Luki heroically resisting strong Russian attacks. For days, the Germans have been keeping up the pretense that they still hold Veliki Luki, possibly counting on recapturing this strong point and then claiming that they had never lost it. Perhaps that word heroically in today's communique means the German high command is losing hope of recapturing Veliki Luki. For the last time a German communique spoke of Germans fighting heroically was in making a half-hearted admission of the Russian breakthrough on the middle down front. Also in today's German communique, all the fighting on what the German high command yesterday so vaguely described as the Don region and between the Don and the Caucasus is now described as the defense battle in the south. This is said to be going on with unabated violence, all Russian attacks having been repelled. Britain's Home Secretary, Herbert Morrison, today made a speech at Newcastle dealing with the post-war future of the British Commonwealth. I want it to last, he said, not because it's British, but because it's good and will be better yet. Without it, the world would lose a great factor of stability and progress just when those things are most needed. Mr. Morrison said, it's not enough for our friends or critics abroad to pay lip service to the self-governing empire. It's necessary that they understand it. Other people may think there must be a catch in it somewhere. Well, there is no catch. The freedom and independence of the dominions are real. The proof is ERA, Southern Ireland, which decided to stay out of the war and was left free to do so to the great hurt of the empire's cause and with little advantage to her reputation. Britain's Home Secretary had something to say about worldwide peace and worldwide security, not just freedom from what and freedom from fear in Britain alone. And he had a good deal to say about the future of the empire's colonies, those territories which have not yet attained the status of dominions. It's impossible to cover, in this report, the points which Herbert Morrison covered or touched on. I suggest that you read the speech, not because you'll necessarily like it, but as long as this transatlantic controversy is going on, the criticisms might just as well be based on the facts. If there has to be an argument, 
It always helps a little when both sides talk about the same thing. London has reports from the Middle East of increasingly heavy blows by Allied air forces against the enemy in North Africa. Especially in the past 48 hours, the range and number of Royal Air Force night operations have been increased. And Royal Air Force and United States Army Air Force bombers coming from east and west have now met for the first time in a sort of air pincers attack on the German bases in Tripolitania. Next to CBS Cairo and the report of Columbia's correspondent in Cairo. Tim Morrison in Cairo. Nothing you would call news is coming through the evil weather that now blankets the front in Libya. But the front that 10 weeks ago was 150 miles from Cairo is now 1,500 miles away, and getting there is proportionately difficult. Let me tell you instead what goes on here. A year ago, an American in this city was almost a rarity. Now even the shoeshine boys have learned to spot American insignia and even to identify an American in civilian clothes. The other night in the lobby of Shepherd's Hotel... I heard the unmistakable accent of Indiana cutting through the murmur of lobby conversation. It was the voice of an American girl in the blue uniform of the Army nurses. Yes, I heard her say to an English captain, Yes, I know, I'm a pretty girl. But right now I'm hungry. And what are we going to do about that? I see Americans everywhere now. All of them doing something. All learning the terrible importance of this front. And as I watch them... I think that perhaps the reason the shoeshine boys can spot them is their air of brisk freshness. Listening to my countrymen here is like attending a continuous performance of Gone with the Wind. So many of them are from the South. But today I was talking to a Yankee from Cambridge, Massachusetts. He told me the leaves turned red and yellow last fall, as though nothing were more important. He said there was snow now in the little street and that the subway fare to Boston is still a dime. And as we talked, I remembered a Yorkshireman. He told me the leaves turned red and yellow last fall, as though nothing were more important. He said there was snow now in the little street, and that the subway fare to Boston is still a dime. And as we talked, I remembered a Yorkshireman who told me all one night about his own village of Putsey. And I realized that there must be thousands of conversations like this. People here don't talk about war. War to us has become not a crusade, but a job to be finished. People here talk about home and about tomorrow. They have ideas about the world tomorrow. And if the ideas crystallize and have effect, tomorrow's will be a better world. This is Chester Morrison returning you to CBS New York. That was Chester Morrison of the Chicago Sun reporting from Cairo. 1,500 miles to the north in Russia, the Red Army is still advancing. But the midday communique from Moscow makes it clear that the Nazis are counterattacking desperately. So far, the counterattacks seem to have done little good, since even the German communique claims only that the Nazi armies are fighting defensively. On the other hand, the Russian noon communique said that the Red Army had occupied 30 inhabited localities in the Caucasus region, and press dispatches indicate that the important Nazi-held railway junction, Georgievsk, is practically surrounded with Russian troops within 10 miles of the city. In the Don area, where the Nazi counterattacks were the heaviest, the Russians claimed new gains and said the Germans suffered a serious defeat and heavy losses of equipment. Thus, at week's beginning, with at least five Red Armies driving directly or indirectly on Rostov, 
the Russians appear to have a reasonable chance to cut off the Axis armies in the Caucasus. Next, to our own hemisphere for news from Latin America. Admiral Radio takes you now to CBS Chile, Charles Griffin reporting. It is expected towards the end of next week or soon afterwards when the Senate is informed of the latest developments by means of exposition to be read out on Tuesday the 12th by the foreign minister. The minister of interior, Senor Raul Morales, delivered a report of his recently completed official mission to the United States last night. And President Rio, accompanied by foreign minister, Senor Joaquin Fernandez, and a number of experts, is devoting the weekend in his summer residence at Viña del Mar to give the finishing touches to the proposal for an early break-off with the Axis, it is affirmed. The foreign minister denied the report that the president of Chile and Argentina contemplated meeting to on the border. That was Charles Griffin reporting from Chile. One of Colombia's reporters is today in one of the famous bombers that gave Tokyo the first taste of American bombs. Admiral Radio switches now to a microphone aboard a B-25 somewhere over the Gulf of Mexico... And Bill Slocum, Jr., ready to report from one of America's most efficient fighting weapons. Again, it's purely coincidental, because I am now laying on my stomach in a B-25, a vicious piece of fighting machinery built to carry bombs and more bombs and a minimum of human cargo. This B-25 is the same model that Jimmy Doolittle and some other ambitious young Americans took off from Shangri-La for a little bombing job in and around Tokyo. The B-25 is also the ship that is making clay pigeons out of Axis boats and supply depots in North Africa. It is really quite a ship. And restrictions permitting, I'd like to tell you how this dynamite-spitting gadget works. It's a two-motor job, and it carries, in addition to bombs, heavy and well-distributed machine gun emplacements. Its normal crew consists of six men. But if Shangri-La happens to be some distance away, it can function with fewer. At the controls of this B-25 is Lieutenant J.B.'s Richard of Great Neck, Long Island, a schoolmate of mine and once something of the town's problem child. Today, he's operations officer at Southeast Training Center of the Flying Training Command's Tyndall Field and a very serious young man indeed. Lieutenant Richard... You've been pointing my ear about B-25s for two days now. Would you repeat some of that briefly for the listeners? The B-25 is a great bombing instrument because it's capable of carrying a heavy load and still move fast enough to keep fighter planes at a respectful distance. There's plenty of machine gun protection, too. It's a trifle hot when she lands, but if you tend to your business, you won't have much trouble getting her in. Thank you, Lieutenant Richard. A little hot is pilot's term in archetology for a plane that lands with great speed. And the B-25 does that, just as it does everything else, with high speed. The B-25 is a big airplane, although it is called a medium bomber. It permits its crew all the freedom of movement they would have, all six of them in a telephone booth. It is a compact instrument of war, and unless you want to wriggle along in your stomach, you stay put once you get in. Before me are a pilot and a co-pilot. In front of them, down in the nose, is a bombardier. Behind me, sitting on a tiny stool, is a navigator, and next to him, a very grim young man who handles a very potent piece of machine gun gear. There's another gun farther back. There are gadgets everywhere. I can't tell you much about them because, A, I don't know anything about them, and, B, I wouldn't be let talk about them if I knew. 
But I do know American ingenuity has poured steel, aluminum, cloth, and dynamite into a piece of fighting machinery which, when mixed with the courage and brains of American airmen, should go a long way towards shortening up this war. And Tokyo Air Wardens will be unhappy to learn that we are not faced with any shortage of B-25s at the moment. I return you to CBS in New York and John Daly. Now, for the news at home, Admiral Radio takes you next to CBS Washington, Lee White reporting. Washington this week has come to a sort of turning point. Except for the rumpus over Ed Flynn's hopes of becoming a diplomat after resigning as chairman of the Democratic National Committee, there's no immediate cause for bickering between the administration and its opponents. There's the question of post-war planning, of course. In his speech last Wednesday, the president said he thought it within the realm of possibility that the 78th Congress would be called upon to formulate a peace. Yesterday, the dominant isolationist member of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, Mr. Nye, said he thought the New Deal's peace plans were doomed to failure, just as were those of Wilson. But he added that he and his Republican colleagues would have no objection to discussing peace plans calmly with their Democratic opponents, even while the war is going on. In Congress last Wednesday, I watched the reactions of certain legislators to Mr. Roosevelt's speech. Hamilton Fish and Arthur Vandenberg never once applauded, even when Mr. Uh, except when Mr. Roosevelt left the House. But Gerald Nye applauded every time the president mentioned disarmament or peace, except on one occasion when the phrase was durable peace. In general, the president's speech was well received, though the applause I noticed was rather milder from the Republican wing than those who heard the speech over the radio may have thought. Even Republicans, however, accepted the speech as a conciliatory gesture on the part of Mr. Roosevelt. And it was conciliatory, except on one specific point, expansion of Social Security after the war. Here the president, in saying, I dissent, made it very clear that in the two years remaining to the administration, he would do everything in his power to impress on Congress what he considers its obligation to our fighting men, to assure them of the third freedom, freedom from want, by means of permanent unemployment insurance and free hospital and medical care for those who require it. At his White House conference on Friday, the president was asked if he anticipated much debate on Senator Wagner's pending Social Security bill. He said he didn't, and explained that he felt the differences at the moment are based on methods of attaining Social Security rather than the principle that Social Security is a good and necessary thing. Tomorrow, the Congress will receive the president's budget message for the fiscal year beginning on the 1st of next July. Mr. Roosevelt is expected to request appropriations of more than $100 billion, mostly for war expenditures, and Congress is expected to give his text a very critical appraisal. Most of our legislators are dead set against spending a cent more than is necessary, even for airplanes, but our legislators are not expected to quibble over the direct costs of the war. They may argue over some of the president's views, for his budget message is expected to be couched in far more specific, stronger terminology than his address on the state of the nation. But they won't even have much of an opportunity to fight over income taxes, for the president has anticipated their temper and has already gone on record in, in favor of pay-as-you-go. Though he still supports Mr. Morgenthau and others at the Treasury in their opposition to the Rummel Plan, so-called, neither he nor Mr. Morgenthau any longer oppose pay-as-you-go in principle. So it's almost certain that Congress will shortly pass the Rummel Plan or something very like it, no matter what it's called and with a very substantial majority. There will be very little debate in, in Congress. But one thing people ought to understand is this. 
pay-as-you-go isn't going to save anybody any money. It will merely ensure that taxes are paid on time. A Navy communique just released announces two more raids on the Japanese airfield at Munda on New Georgia Island, but apparently with no great results. We now return you to CBS in New York. Returning for a moment to the air war in Tunisia, back in this country after serving on the North African front, Brigadier General Stuart C. Godfrey of the Aviation Engineers has an interesting story of methods of building advanced air bases almost overnight. Godfrey says when it became necessary to establish advanced bases to support the action in Tunisia, a call was put in for airborne engineers. With their equipment, they were flown in cargo planes to points as close as possible to the selected sites. Within three days, flying fortresses were taking off from the first base, and a second base was completed on the next day. And now, Warren Sweeney with a word from Admiral Radio. As you know, point rationing will soon go into effect. The government is doing much to help you understand how it works, giving you daily information by means of radio programs. All you need to do is listen, and, of course, keep your radio in good operating order. This last is a job which had better be turned over to your admiral dealer. It's almost impossible to buy a new radio, and even some parts are difficult to replace these days. So don't let an inexperienced person service a radio you own. Your admiral dealer can put almost any set in perfect condition, quickly and economically, because he has the right tools, the facilities, and years of experience. Admiral dealers consider it a patriotic duty to help keep America's radios in tip-top shape, just as Admiral considered it a patriotic duty to turn both great Admiral plants to war production, the same plants which made Admiral in peacetime the world's largest manufacturer of radio phonograph combinations with automatic record changers. So call your Admiral dealer for radio service. Be sure your set is in the hands of an expert. When you buy war bonds and stamps, you're protecting your future in two ways. First, war bonds and stamps ensure the freedoms and liberties American citizens have always enjoyed. Second, you're saving for a rainy day or for the luxuries you'll be able to have after victory is won. For logical reasons... Invest 10% of your earnings in U.S. war bonds and stamps. Don't let yourself or Uncle Sam down. World News Today is brought to you each Sunday at this hour by Continental Radio and Television Corporation, makers of Admiral Radio, America's smart set. Be sure to listen again next Sunday when Admiral brings you World News Today by shortwave, direct from the leading news centers of the world. This is Warren Sweeney speaking for Admiral Radio. This is the Columbia Broadcasting System. Our next news broadcast will be heard at 4.45 this afternoon. This is the WBBM Air Theater, Wrigley Building, Chicago.